Um, just like a lot of people think that science and Christianity like can't go together. They can't coexist. Um, you have to be either one or the other. Um, and I've definitely struggled with that because um, like I do like science, um, but I also am a Christian. So that has definitely been something that I've struggled with, especially with reading the Bible. Hey, everybody. Welcome to week number two of Your Curiosity is Your Velocity. How do we unstuck ourselves uh, spiritually? Today is cancel culture, and we're going to focus on this. Why is it only that genuine faith can cancel an unjust culture? I'm in my Hawaiian shirt. I'm going to explain that in just a few moments, if you'll hang with me. But because we're in Genesis chapter one, the creation of the world, I'd like to show you some pictures I've got here that I took of my trip to Montana with my wife and my daughter. The first picture is in front of just a magnificent waterfall. Two of my most favorite people in the entire world. We took this awesome hike to this waterfall called Virginia Falls, of all things, in Montana. The second picture is just another vantage point, and it's... Uh, my favorite person, the person I love the most. We just celebrated an anniversary and we took our picture in front of that waterfall and it was awesome. Just a great view. This next picture is at Mini Glacier um, and we're getting ready to, when we took this picture, we're getting ready to hike up to Grinnell Lake and then eventually the Grinnell uh, Glacier. And behind us is a stunning view. The picture could never do it justice. That uh chalet that's behind us there is resembling St. Moritz in Switzerland. Uh, it's just a beautiful picture. We just got off some horses, riding some horses, and now we're taking a 12-mile hike up to the Grinnell Glacier. This picture next is, that's not the horse we rode. Uh, our daughter said, you've got to drive up to the Canadian border because there's buffalo up there. So we did, and when we're there, we're looking at the buffalo, and along comes uh, a guy, really super nice guy, he was riding one horse and had another horse walking behind him, and my wife was eating pretzels, and the guy said, do you want to feed the horse a pretzel? And before you knew it, the horse stuck his whole head inside of the car, and she's feeding the horse pretzels. There's a whole story behind it, but that was really cool. My wife, always the animal lover. This next picture we took, this is not Grinnell Lake, uh, we took another hike. My daughter said, hey, look, I've got to be at work um, it was like by like one o'clock or something like that. She said, but let's just do a short hike, a quick hike, an easy hike up to a lake. I think we'll have fun. Well, it was a 12 mile hike, 2,500 feet of elevation that we had to do in four hours or less. And we got there, we took that picture and we just turned around and ran. We ran because we're running out of time. And we also ran because we were swarmed by mosquitoes. So we took a quick picture and we just got out of there as fast as we could could. This picture is in front of the stunning Grinnell Lake. You can see why people want to worship creation because it's so absolutely magnificent. And again, the picture is great, but it can't do its justice. And then this final picture, my daughter took it. She is on top of a mountain. You can see she's up in the clouds and it is just absolutely fabulous, everybody. We had a great time. Here's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about genuine faith. I need to mention here, people have been inclined, humanity has been inclined to worship nature. We can understand why the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, 
so magnificent. God's creation is absolutely stunning that we can see why thousands of years ago, even up to today, why people would be inclined to worship nature. But we want to talk about what is genuine faith? What does it mean to have genuine faith? That's our focus today. And let's pick up Today, Genesis chapter 1, where we left off last week. Here we go, verse number 11, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. I'll just say here, God is the great separator. He's separating light from darkness. And then, of course, I just read numerous times according to their kind. So God is seen as the great separator. Now, verse number 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And right there, you're like, wait a minute, how do we have plants and trees? How are they growing? How are they existing? And the sun is not even created until day number four. And why is it that the sun is not even named or the moon is not even named? Verse 15. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So I want to go back to what I just said a minute ago. Because we might be troubled by that, particularly if we're science seekers instead of being wisdom seekers. Again, I'll remind you of the one-off sermon that we did called Start Here. It's very important that we start there. When we read the scriptures, not to be science seekers because the people writing it weren't seeking science. They were seeking wisdom and the culture and the people to whom it was written directly to were seeking wisdom. They weren't seeking science. So as we read that, that plants and trees and vegetation and they're growing and yet the sun does not exist until the following day, right there we hit a stumbling block. Now, the other thing is, is the sun is not named. Now that's very interesting. Why would the sun not be named? I'll come back to that in a moment. I'd like to make an observation here. Everything mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, we are very familiar with. It's so unlike many other creation stories, all of a sudden you don't see a flying horse or a dragon or some other kind of mythical creatures. It's all things that we are very, very familiar with right to this day. They were, we are right here, right now. There's no mythical creatures that are mentioned. Also, like so many other creation stories, there's not this selfish, greedy God who's power hungry, who's angry and violent, you get a very different picture of God before us. Now, as I said a few moments ago, they were very inclined to worship nature. We are to this very day. Why am I wearing my Hawaiian shirt? Many years ago, we took a trip to Hawaii. We went to the top of Mount Haleakala on the island of Maui. 
I love Hawaii. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If I went there as like a graduation from high school gift, I would not be sitting here in Virginia. I would be in Hawaii because I love to surf and I love the beauty of God's stunning and magnificent creation. We took a trip to my wife's insistence to see the sunrise on Mount Haleakala on the island of Maui. And it was an entire spiritual buffet up there. People were chanting. They were singing. They were ringing bells. People were dancing. Everything was going on there. And it is so stunning. As the sun comes up above the clouds, 10,000 feet up on top of Mount Haleakala, and I am freezing. My wife told me it's going to be cold. I said, there's no way it's going to be cold. Oh, it was cold. It was like 30 degrees up there, and the whole spiritual buffet is going on. Here comes the sun, and everybody, it's ecstatic. And the group of guys next to us said, good morning, Mother Earth. Like, here we go. We're ready to worship. And my wife, whom my kids affectionately call the Reverend, said, Good morning, Jesus. We are inclined to worship. We're inclined to worship. Now, many, we can understand that. I can understand that because the mountains and the sun and the moon and the stars are so magnificent. It was so magnificent that day. Why is it that Genesis chapter one immediately demotes the sun, does not name it, does not name the moon? It is because the sun has absolutely nothing to say about the injustice and the suffering and the pain going on in this world. The famous psalm that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's not coming from the mountains. It's not coming from the sun. It's not coming from the moon or the stars. It only comes from God in his very first speech ever, let there be light. So today we want to talk about genuine faith. What does the word faith mean in Hebrew? So let's get serious about faith. Let's go inside and unpack faith in the Hebrew scriptures. Let's dig into the historical cultural concept in the Bible, like dig down into the Bible here, very, very deep on the word faith. What does it mean? Now, I want to refer back to that sermon I did a few weeks back called Start Here, because in that message, we talked about the fact something everybody agrees on, something widely known, there's no argument about this, is that Hebrew is written in red from right to left, but we write and read from left to right. And though that seems very simple, it's a different way of of understanding fundamentally or foundationally what is faith and where is it leading. And if we get this wrong, we could have a mess. We could have a real big mess and we can, well, we can disrupt our faith and we could disrupt other people's faith of understanding. But let me try to illustrate it this way. So I talked about Montana. Well, out in Montana, I remember the day we went up to Mini Glacier and we took a hike and we were going to some lake, not Grinnell Lake. It was another lake. It's like a five or six mile hike and we're out on the trail and everybody we ran into were asking us, did you see the bears? Like, no, we haven't seen the bears. And everybody's saying, we saw bears. We've seen multiple bears. There are bears everywhere. And so on this long hike going up to whatever lake we were going to, everybody was seeing bears. And that was just like increasing the tension, right? The nervousness. And so we we ran into a couple, an older couple. I guess they were probably in their 70s. And as everybody said bears to us, I the fear was mounting. And the couple that was behind us that kind of just joined with us because there's strength in numbers, 
They had bells. They had whistles. They were clapping. They were singing. Krista starts clapping and singing. Gracie starts clapping and singing. And of course, they put me out at the front in case we came across a bear. I would be the first one that would confront the bear. And we had bear spray, obviously. And we ran across a couple. They were coming the opposite direction. And we said to them, have you seen bears? And the guy was hilarious. He was probably 75 or 80 years old. He said, bears, have we seen bears? Let me tell you what happened. They saw three bears, and one of the bears ran directly at them. And he said, I had my bear spray already used, but I was so freaked out, I couldn't figure out what to do with it. Just, and I remember before Gracie ever went to Montana, we got the bear spray, we watched a video about how to use it, and then we practiced. I need you to practice, just like the military. I need you to drill over and over again so that when you get scared and you're panicked, you're going to spray it correctly and you're going to spray it in the right direction. Because if you don't spray it correctly and in the right direction, you're going to have a mess on your hands. And I got to tell you, this is a very sad story. <laughs> but there was a parent and they were out in bear country and they were thinking that bear spray is like insect repellent. And so they wanted to spray their kids. And so they sprayed the bear spray on their... Here, everybody, that's a very... And they actually got thrown in jail for this. But if we don't understand fundamentally, foundationally, the right direction in Hebrew, and what you know, what is that leading us towards, we can have a mess in our hands. So here's the first thing that I want to say about faith. Faith is an action. It's something that we do. Faith isn't focused on what we know. Of course, there's knowledge there. Faith isn't focused on what we know. It's focused on what we do. It is an action. We say in our world, in our culture, particularly in the church world that I grew up in, that a person has great faith because they know things about God. They have all this information about God. Paul in the scriptures puts it this way. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is an action. It is something we do. And you cannot separate in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, faith and love. They are tied completely together. That's a very important point. I want to come back to it in a moment. What is genuine faith and why is it only genuine faith that can really cancel an unjust culture? The faith, a person has great faith. We often think about the fact that a person with great faith, they believe that God will act. They have knowledge about God and they believe in the end that God will act. I mentioned last week Tertullian. His impact upon the Christian church was quite profound. He was the greatest of the early Western theologian. He believed in a fixed set of beliefs. You believe in these things and you don't turn back and you seek nothing more because that knowledge, whether you understood all those points of your belief or not, didn't, didn't matter. You believed in them, whether they made sense or not, and that was it. And that's what it meant to be a person of great faith, and you didn't seek anything else. That is not the biblical understanding. That is not the deep understanding of the culture and the context of the Bible written in Hebrew. It is things that you do. It's not a creed. It is ultimately, in the end, a conduct of course, it starts with knowledge, but the end point is conduct and it's action on our part. A person might say, I have great faith. And then the end of that, where it all ends, is that God will act. In the Bible, a person of great faith would say, I have great faith, therefore I will act. 
So in the end of things, it's not the action of God, because in Hebrew, in the biblical culture, in the context, and you see this backed up in story after story after story after story, the end of that faith, that great faith, is our actions, your actions, my actions, our conduct, not our creed. That's what it leads us towards. Faith is not what you know, it's what you do. Faith, the end product of great faith, is not what you know, it's what you do. And that's the difference between science-seeking and wisdom-seeking or a Western thought or an Eastern thought, which the Bible was written in. We need to be more influenced by Jesus in Jerusalem than by Aristotle and Athens. So when we read texts like, we walk by faith, not by sight, we might have the wrong impression that it's saying that, well, faith is blind. I'm believing in things I can't understand. They don't make sense. But in the scriptures, what Adam and Eve saw the fruit and were deceived. And constantly you're seeing things and you're deceived. Sight isn't what is blind. It is what is deceptive. It's what's unproven. It's what does not work. Faith in contrary, contrast to that are the things that are proven. They're true. They absolutely work. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So first of all, faith is action. Secondly, faith is doing. It's things that I do. You do the things that make the most sense. They're proven and they're true. Now let's talk about the faith of the centurion. Because it's really hard to amaze Jesus. But Jesus was absolutely amazed. And what was he amazed about? I think this is the only time in Scripture that Jesus says he was amazed by anything. He was amazed by the faith of the centurion, a non-Jewish person. The faith is... I'm going to read you the story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home. He's paralyzed and he's suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great Faith. He was amazed at the Roman centurion, the occupier, who had such great faith. Similar thing Jesus says to the Canaanite woman, also a non-Jewish person. She had come to Jesus asking for something, and Jesus was, he just says, what great faith? What Now, why? Why is their faith great? Let's come back to that in just a moment, but let's review Genesis chapter 1 and what we have learned from the first great speech of God in Genesis chapter 1 that we talked about last week. God said, let there be light. Let there be light. Well, is light material creation? Genesis 1-3, God's first great speech. Is it material creation or is it a metaphor? Is it a cultural metaphor? And what we said last week is, is that light represents... In that culture, in Hebrew, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, as deliverance. Deliverance from injustice. And that the word of God, the wind of God, blows back all the darkness, all the chaos, everything about life that makes life so miserable, so unjust, so unfair. Hurt, pain, suffering. The word of God blows. The speech of God, and it pushes it back. Light represents deliverance. God is my light 
in my salvation. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He's a savior. He saves us. He delivers us out of hurt, pain, and suffering. That is what light is. So what's the first thing we learn? What is, what is the Bible calling us to believe in, to have faith in? And that is, is we are called to deliver people from hurt, pain, suffering, and injustice because that is what great faith does. So there's the, there's the first thing. But why? Why is God delivering? Why is God bringing us light? It's because he loves us, because we're created in his image. Remember what I said earlier? That you can't separate in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for faith, from love. They are tied at the hip. And there's a lot of stories about that, but I can't unpack all that now, but we will. We will unpack it. But they are tied at the hip. We are made in the image of God. A child represents or resembles, resembles their parents. We resemble God and God created us out of love. We are his children and he loves us very much. And in opposition to the many, many creation stories that we have of the gods who are selfish and greedy and humanity was created as an afterthought to be a servant and a slave to the gods, In Genesis 1, humanity is created as the crowning thought, as the crowning moment, and God, of all things, serves us and provides for us. An amazing reversal, completely opposite. So, let's go back through that if we can. What we have in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is introducing to us what it means to have great faith in him. And that is that we participate as God is bringing deliverance in delivering people from pain and injustice and suffering and all the hurt because of love out of selfless, selfless service and sacrifice to him. Final point, faith is reflecting God by delivering. Faith is reflecting and it is delivering. Now let's go back to the centurion and the Canaanite woman. What were they doing? Why did Jesus have, why did Jesus say they have great, uh, they have great faith? And why was Jesus amazed at the centurion? In the centurion's part, he loved his servant. And even though he was a part of the hated Romans who were occupying Israel, he comes to Jesus on a long journey. He acts on a long journey out of love and selfless service and sacrifice and says, please alleviate the hurt and the pain and the suffering of my servant. I love my servant. So he's trying to deliver because of love and alleviate hurt, pain and suffering. And he's doing it selflessly. Okay. The Canaanite woman. She is a non-Jew. She is a woman. And she comes because she loves her daughter and her daughter is suffering and she wants to deliver the daughter from hurt, pain, and suffering out of love. And she is willing through opposition. You can read the story because Jesus says something to her and it's like, what? What's going on here? But she, out of selfless service, love, and sacrifice, she is willing to come to Jesus and say, please alleviate. And so Jesus is saying here, why do they have great faith? It's because they understand that we are supposed to be people of the light, delivering people from hurt, pain, suffering, and injustice because of love. Every point of this is important because of love and selfless sacrifice. So I put it here right in your notes. Faith seeks to deliver people from pain, suffering, and injustice because of love and through selfless service. Faith is not what we know. It is what we do. It's about our conduct 
as a result of our creed. The Good Samaritan. Famous story of the Good Samaritan. So famous, we even have a Good Samaritan law here in Virginia. We have a Good Samaritan law, right? And what does it mean? The Samaritan is the least likely person in that story, famous story that Jesus told, the least likely person to take action to alleviate the pain and the suffering of the person who was hurting. The other people in the story, they should have done something. They didn't. But the least likely took action to do something. That is what faith is. It is an action. It reflects God. It reflects his light. It delivers people. It's something that we do. We don't we don't just we just don't walk away from people hurting and in pain. Now, as we get into the book of Exodus eventually, this amazing book that are about the Jewish people and they're oppressed and they're suffering. It's a terrible time. It's a time that is fear-filled. It's a time that there's oppressive power. They are enslaved. It's a male-dominated time. The three heroes of great faith that were introduced to in the opening pages of Exodus are all non-Jewish females. They're non-Jewish women. This text is written to Jewish people, and we are highlighting non-Jewish people. And what do they do? The midwives. Pharaoh says, who was conceived as a god... The oppressor Pharaoh says to the midwives, kill all the male babies. And they defy Pharaoh and they take action and they don't kill. Why are they people of great faith? Because they take action and they do something about it. Who's the next hero? The the daughter of Pharaoh. She sees Moses out in the water and she takes action and she delivers him from death by the crocodiles in the Nile River, she takes action. So what you have is these three great heroes of faith, non-Jews, females, take action. And that is why they are seen in the opening pages of Exodus as people of great faith. Then eventually we get to Moses. Now the famous story of Moses, he's out on a construction site and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster just ruthlessly beating a Jewish person, a Hebrew person. And then it says this. It says, Moses looks this way and he looks this way. Now we, I always at least, thought, well, he's looking this way and this way to see, is anybody going to see what I'm going to do? But he's on a construction site. And construction sites, anytime I've been on one, are filled with lots of people. And the very next day, everybody knew about what Moses did. So what is looking this way and this way mean? He's looking around to see, isn't anybody going to do anything about this? Isn't anybody going to take action? Does anybody here amongst all of these people have enough faith to do something about the suffering, pain, and injustice going on? And nobody's going to do anything. So Moses takes action. So Moses, the great lawgiver, repeatedly, there's repeated stories about him where he sees injustice and he takes action and he does something about it. That is why Moses is on the front of our Supreme Court and in so many government buildings around the United States of America because he is the lawgiver and the lawgiver is focused on justice. That is who Moses is. Okay, on a far, far, far lesser level than Moses, I remember one day 
about a decade ago, being at the Best Buy in Seven Corners. It was right before they opened. I guess it was probably 10 o'clock or something like that. There was about 20 people standing at the front door waiting for it to open. And as all of us stood there just quietly minding our own business, there was a guy that was there that was very upset at Best Buy about something. And there was, there was an employee. She was, she was female. She was, she was small and she was there. She was in her uniform because everybody knew and she's waiting there with all the rest of us. And this guy was angry about some of the Best Buy and he started just letting her have it. And I remember, again, this is a much lesser level than Moses, looking around and thinking, is anybody, because she's obviously scared, isn't anybody going to do anything or say anything? Now, I just simply said, hey, and, and, and he stopped. So it wasn't like some great hero, but I remember that. So it's not just these big grand defense. I'm going to mention some in just a moment. It's not these big, but it's what you and I do every single day in smaller moments where we speak up and help to deliver people because of love through selfless service and sacrifice. That is great faith. So we think of some of the big, you know, well-known global people who are great heroes of faith. Nelson Mandela and what he did. Rosa Parks, Mother Teresa. Not everybody can be a Mother Teresa, but out of great love. She helped to deliver people who were suffering in pain. William Wilberforce. His fight against abolition cost him his career. He could have had a stunning career, but he he just devoted himself to that. Devoted himself to that. How about Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaking, the great theologian, great young theologian who just fought and fought against the Nazis. It cost him his life in Germany. I'm thinking about a book I read years ago about John Rockefeller, the richest guy in the world who made so much money off of oil. I think about one of the stories that's told there about his mother-in-law. She would go to the bars and get down on her knees in Cleveland, Ohio, and beg men to stop drinking. Now, a lot of times we look at situations about church and Christians, and they speak out against the evils, alcohol, and all this kind of stuff, and that doesn't really go on anymore. That was when I was a kid, and we wonder, where did that come from? Well, it actually came from a place where people were concerned about wives and children who were suffering as their husbands were in a bar drinking all their money away, and the wife is at home with the kids with no money whatsoever. And she would go and do that. Matter of fact, Rockefeller says the only time he ever saw his mother-in-law work on Sundays is when she fed people who were coming through Cleveland on the Underground Railroad. And I've said this to a number of people, people, a lot of people don't know this. But Rockefeller's wife, her maiden name was Spellman. That's where Spellman College comes from. So he believed in a faith that acted. These are great heroes of faith. Not all of us can be the richest people in the world or be a Mother Teresa. So we do things. You and I can do things to be people of faith. We have a friend of ours who comes to Grace. Krista has known her in her entire life. Her name is Ruth Ann. Ruth Ann drives people who are blind to doctor's appointments. She drives people who are blind to the grocery store. That is an act of great faith. We need more of that. That is a biblical example of the depths of faith. It doesn't end in God acting. It ends in me acting. 
It's about what I do. It's not about what I know. The end result is what I do. It's moving in the right direction. I was talking to Anamaya, our director of compassion and justice initiatives. I said, you know, think about, think about COVID. Think about what we've gone through. What, what are you most excited about? She said, rent assistance. We partner with other churches and other nonprofits to help people avoid the misery of eviction. We have done that. And matter of fact, during COVID, Grace Community Church, we're only about three things, Christ, community, and compassion. Compassion for us is serving. We're going to be externally focused. And I know a pastor at the beginning of COVID who said to his church, and I can understand this because there's a lot of fear, but he said, very well-known person, he said, don't you dare, church people, stop tithing. That's a fear-filled statement. Don't you dare stop tithing. That's very inward focused. But Grace made the decision because one, one of the three things, and we only do three things, is compassion. It's about being externally focused. We did more, gave more, served more during COVID than we ever have in our history. We set records that way. And it's not because we're great, but it goes back to what is the Bible informing us about our faith. And grace is involved, and people at grace are involved in all kinds of things through grace and outside of grace to make a difference in the world. And that's why I'm so thrilled about moving into the Boston Quarter because it's going to give us a platform to do more because the people at the Boston Quarter are like, yes, bring it on. We'd love to work with you to make a difference, to end pain, suffering, and justice because of love through selfless service and sacrifice. I think about, and I just could keep going and going and going, but my wife and a group of other women went to Germany because we sponsor, we help to support, we help to support a ministry called Pink Door. They minister to women who are prostitutes in Germany and they help to love them. They love them. And if they want to get out of that lifestyle to help them to get out of that lifestyle. And I remember after that trip, my daughter was on that trip and she was in a class in college and another female in the class was saying, you know what? Prostitution can be such just a beautiful, wonderful, loving thing, such a great thing to do and to provide for your family. But my daughter knows prostitutes from that trip. She saw them. She had conversations with them. She watched a young woman prostitute on the streets in Germany who had severe dental problems and was not the most attractive. And she saw how her pimp was forcing her to get out there and to make money for him selfishly. And she watched, my daughter watched, is this young lady because of the problems that she had, guys would drive up, look at her like a piece of meat and shake their head. And she would try to get them. And you know how hard that is to be rejected? To be, a, to be abused that way. And so we partner with Pink Door to alleviate the pain and suffering. Now that's great faith. And this is what the Bible is, is saying to us. It's not what we know, it's what we do. That is the end product. It's that the end of it is not, when you get to the end of great faith, it's not God acting, it's us acting. It's you acting and it is me acting. It's not what you know, it is what you do. And that's why only genuine faith, according to Genesis 1, God is light, he is our salvation, only genuine faith. In God's very first speech, the sun, the moon, the stars say nothing, make zero speeches against injustice. God makes the speech. And that is why only genuine faith and a correct understanding of genuine faith can cancel, can cancel an unjust culture. And I want to end by simply saying this. We talked about it last week. The painful thing is many of us, including me, have been hurt deeply 
by somebody associated with the Bible and maybe by somebody who has a misunderstanding of faith. And it hurts. So we're talking about a lot of intellectual things, but it has hurt our heart and we are in emotional pain. And it's going to be very difficult for us to really receive the truth of God's word while all that pain is hanging on our hearts. And so, as I said last week, I have written my story down in a letter and I'm going to shred it at the end of this series in a paper shredder and I'm going to burn it. And I want to invite you to write me a letter. The address of our office is on the screen now. If you would like to, you don't have to, but if you would like to write me a letter, send it to my attention at the office. I can read the letter or if you don't want me reading it, I don't have to read it. Put your pain on paper. It is very helpful. It's very therapeutic. Put your pain on paper and let's destroy it. Let's burn it. Let's pray over it. And let's ask God to bring healing to our hearts. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you that you give us clarity about what genuine faith is. Help all of us to act in agreement with who you are to reflect you, God, and to do everything we can by your guidance to help to deliver people from hurt, pain, and injustice in this world, in Christ's name. Amen.